Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I want to tell you about a guy named Tom. Tells a story about a night when he was a teenager. And he and his friends were walking around the neighborhood, kind of a warm night, very dark night. Suddenly, one of them saw a police car, and they shouted, oh, cops. You know, they hadn't done anything wrong, but they didn't want to be seen either, so they started to run. And the police car, police car saw them, watched them turn down an alley, and Tom kind of tripped, knocked over some trash cans, made a lot of noise. The cops heard that, began to go after them. One of them turned on his searchlight, and Tom looked around for his friends, didn't see them. All he saw was this burning searchlight in his eyes, just looking for him. And then Tom jumped behind these trash cans. He found his friends that were huddled there. They tried to hide by actually pulling all this trash on top of themselves and hoping to blend in. Didn't really work. The spotlight kind of fell on Tom. Come out where we can see you, was what the voice said behind the light. Tom stood up where he was, and he's covered in garbage. And, and the voice says, what are you doing? And Tom says, kind of stammered, no, 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 nothing. And the voice said, um, I can't hear you. What are you doing? Tom said, officer, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I saw the light and I ran. And I knocked over these garbage cans. I'm sorry about the trouble. The searchlight's really bearing down on his eyes and it's blinding him. And he stood there in this light. He had nowhere to hide. And the voice said, I think I recognize you. Don't you live around the corner? And he said, yeah. His heart was racing. He says, okay, that's it. My life, my life is ruined now. If I don't get disturb, arrested for disturbing the peace, something worse is going to happen to me. This officer is going to tell my parents. But then the voice behind the light kind of said something unexpected. He said, son, I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to protect you. And as he stood before that searchlight, Tom says he caught a glimpse of what it meant to stand before Jesus as the light of the world. Because there was this kid, he's fully exposed, yet he's completely protected at the same time. He was fully revealed, yet he was free from unnecessary punishment. You know, he was in fellowship with God while still standing hip deep in garbage. But yet he felt clean, felt cleansed by that light just got it off his chest. In that moment, he saw something of what it means to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is full of light and truth and grace. And so that's a picture of our text this morning. Join me in prayer again, please. Father God, help me to get across what needs to get across today in a very challenging, thought-provoking, heart-searing searching spotlight passage of truth today, Lord God, as we talk about the fact that we need and our loved ones need a searchlight in their eyes and in their hearts about where they stand before you. And what are they going to do about that? Are they going to confess sin or cover it up? So may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the great and wondrous truth that is in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, Lord God, and the Holy Spirit would then help us to apply this word, obey it, walk in it, 
and glorify you in doing so. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we sit. Uh, I think we, our loved ones, we know who profess Christ, they need to be exposed to the light of God. Really do. Why? We have polls that tell us 75% of America says they're Christian. But when you go through the scripture on what it means to be a biblically-based evangelical Christian, the number dwindles to 10 to 15% at most. That's a huge difference. Why is that? Well, because casual, comfortable Christianity is not always real core Christianity. That's what this first letter of John's about. And he's got a searchlight here. So we can look at ourselves and others and try to figure out who's who. And when we began looking at this letter last time, we got into the introduction of this first chapter. We opened the series and we were reminded Jesus Christ and the Word became flesh. You've got to know that. The Word being the very heart and mind of God, fully human, fully divine, God incarnate. And then John begins to use this symbolism of life and light as if they're somewhat interchangeable, side by, side by side for us there. And the light, Jesus is not only the source of all life, but he is the source of eternal life as well. So Jesus is the eternal pre-existent son of God because he was with God and he is God. And that parallels the opening of John's gospel. We talked about that. And besides the proof, what was the purpose of all that? Well, if you truly believe in Jesus and who he really is, you get eternal life. And you know that, and that truth will fill you with joy, and that joy will result in a fellowship you can have with God, the Trinity, as well as each other in the church. Now, here's the link from that passage to this one that ends the chapter. In order to have true fellowship with God in Christ and with each other, you have to be able to confess a couple of things. Yes, Jesus is Lord and God in the flesh, and you, you have to be able to confess your own sin and not cover it up, as many people tend to do. So as we're talking about basic Christianity, we're talking about the next proof test of our faith, and that involves the confession of sin and not the covering up of sin. Let's dig into the confession here, starting in verse 5. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's an announcement right there. Proclamation means headline, news, not clickbait. This is big. God is light, and light is anything that emits brightness. You turn on a lamp, you turn on the lights in here, light comes out. And it's interesting. It's one of three big statements this apostle makes about God and his character. He says in this letter, God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. And what we're looking at here is a contrast between light and darkness. You got to get that. The metaphor here is God is like light because light has a real extreme pure quality to it. And it's also a symbol, as we said last time, of truth and knowledge. Because think about light, it exposes things that are in the dark. That's what truth does by definition. And it goes to the idea that this, God is holy, He's unique. There's no one like him, as Psalm 86 says. God is pure light. And the analogy, again, is light, the source of that light, right? God said, and then there was light. 
So he creates light because he is light. Christ is known, Christ is known as what? The light of the world, right? Luke 2.32, the Christmas story. It talked about Jesus coming to earth, and it says he would be a light for revelation of the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. That's why John could say in the first chapter of his gospel, in him was life, and light was life was the light of man. So there's a connection, life and light again. And listen, what you think about God, his characteristics, his attributes, this is huge. A.W. Tozer said, what the Christian comes, what comes into our minds when we think about God, according to Tozer, is the most important thing you'll ever think about. What comes into your mind about God? Now, what does it mean here that God is light and in him there's no darkness? In fact, it, it ends with that little phrase, at all. There's no darkness at all for emphasis, not even one little bit. It means that if you have the light of Christ, you have fellowship with God. We're one of his. We're the real deal. And how does that happen? Well, this text is the first number of contrasts that John puts together to show there's two kinds of people. This is not about two kinds of Christians, as some people have erroneously taught. No, this is about believers and unbelievers. Contrast looks like this. You have those that walk in the light, those that don't. Number two, those that confess their sins, you got those that don't. Thirdly, you got people that are worldly. We'll see that in chapter two, those who are not. Fourth, those who abide in Christ, they stay with Jesus, those who don't. And lastly, there are people that are overcomers and those who are not. All those distinctions, contrasts, point to the difference between believers and unbelievers. So the idea is for you to look at yourself and others lovingly to see where you fit. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine or test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Ah. So if you have the life of God, Christ, you have and should give off this light that John's talking about. It's a test. All of that makes sense when you understand the contrast of light to darkness. People struggle sometimes to define, what is darkness? How do you define darkness? I'm going to be real simple. It's the absence of light. That's what it literally means. If, if it's the lack of light, if we turned off all the lights in this room and we covered up those doors and the windows, you'd be in the dark. Why? Because there's no light in it. That, that simple. So metaphorically, it's talking about the lack of or the absence of that which is righteous and true, the light of God. It's an absence of holiness, okay? And that's going to result in unrighteousness and wickedness, which is why darkness is a picture for the misery of hell. So light and darkness, remember, can't coexist together in the same place, the same time, same space. Why John quoted the Lord in his gospel as saying, the light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Can't coexist. So you're either in the light. Right now, everyone in this room, you're either in the light or in darkness, not only physically, but spiritually. That's what your identity is about. Paul put it this way. He was writing a church very dear to his heart, the church at Thessalonica. And he said, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. Great analogy. So if you're in Christ, you're in the light, 
the light is to shine in the world. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk or live in darkness, but we will have the light of life. And then John attaches living in the light to confession. Look at verse 6 of the text. If we say we have fellowship with him, and that's that koinonia fellowship, close relational community, if we have that kind of fellowship, okay, while we walk in darkness, we lie. You can't say you have that kind of fellowship with God and walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. If you'd like to mark your Bible, circle the word practice, underline it, put stars, do hickeys, whatever you do, around that word, because that's an essential word in this entire letter. If we suppose, he's saying, if we is like saying in the original language, if you suppose, if you mean to say you have fellowship and you're in darkness, something's wrong because you can't walk in both light and darkness at the same time. The word walk there, let's talk about it real quick. Familiar verb in the Christian life, to walk. Physically, yes, you're walking, you're going one way to another, and you're making progress and going from here to there. Again, it's a figure of speech. It refers to someone who's following and someone's way of life, their lifestyle. In fact, in the following sense, Jesus said, or the Apostle John said in the sixth chapter of his gospel, after the Lord gave some really hard words about discipleship, his body and his, the blood, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's not that they were just physically, stop, I'm tired, I don't want to walk with him anymore. No, it means we no longer wanted to follow him in the way we live. So, we're no longer to walk in darkness. Rather, what's our memory verse? Matthew 5, 16, come on. In the same way, let your before, so that they may and give glory. Amen. What a coincidence. That's our memory verse. So the apostle Paul's telling us, if someone says they're fellowshipping with God and the church, in other words, if you tell people you're a Christian, and your lifestyle and your walk is darkness rather than light. It's unrighteousness rather than righteousness. You're not only deceiving yourself, you're lying to other people, and more importantly, you're lying to God. To lie by definition is either to deliberately deceive somebody or deliberately speak a falsehood. And I tend to think lying is a common sin that comes from pride. Normally when you lie, it's because you're covering up something else. You've done something wrong and then you lie about it because you don't want to get caught. There's guilt and shame. And people who lie habitually, they're what Paul calls a night person. This is how he put it in Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another. He's writing Christians. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. There's that word again. Direct parallel Direct application to verse 6. If you profess faith in Christ, you're living a life of darkness. You're both telling a lie, you're living a lie. Verse 7 of our text. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, there's that huge connection now between love and light, fellowship. Daytime people. People of the day, they love their church families. Now, let me stop here. I don't want to give you the impression, talking about sin, that we're legalistic here. Christians sin. 
What a surprise, right? We're not perfect. The big point is, he's trying to make, we're going to see in a moment that we can't cover that up. That's in verses 8 to 10. John's driving home this point. What is your attitude about your sin? How do you feel about it? What do you do about it? Do you even acknowledge it? Are you sensitive to your sin? As importantly, what is the practice of your life is what John is saying here. It's John's way of talking like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. People that practice righteousness are walking in the light, are new creations. Let's talk about that word practice. Again, it's a key word talking about basic Christianity. Another proof test of a real, true, born-again disciple of Christ is the habitual practice of their life. In the original Greek language, that word for practice is an action word, and it's in an ongoing present tense, so it's about what you continually are doing, making, putting forth, what people see. You know, when you talk about practicing sports, I used to go to my son's baseball practices all the time, and they were repetitious. It's drilling and doing the same things over and over and over again. For those of you that play a musical instrument, or you sing, or you dance, it's practice. Why? It's what you're doing, putting forth, repetitiously, ongoing. That's the idea spiritually here. So it has a kind of a broad definition in the Greek, but in this context, it's actually synonymous with the other big idea here, practice, walking, lifestyle. Practice, walking, lifestyle. Those three terms, all are talking about the same thing. And then there's really good analogies for that. John the Baptist used the same root word when he was rebuking the Pharisees, and he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, the same root word of practice is the same root word of bear fruit. So he's saying, in essence, practice what you preach. Practice your repentance, because I don't see it. Hmm. Fruit is another great metaphor and a picture for practice and walking as a Christian. Why? Because fruit is a result of something as a consequence of what's planted in the ground, right? Good soil. Good seed means good fruit. That's a fact of agriculture. That's a fact of the Christian life. I want you to go to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get really thick here with our Lord Jesus. Chapter 7. This is one of the least favorite chapters and passages for Christians that are struggling with light and darkness, and certainly for people that are fully in the darkness and think otherwise. This is going to help us connect all these dots of these analogies, figures of speech we're talking about. Look at Matthew 7, verse 17. Follow with me. This is the Lord's words. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. I'm not a genius. I'm not really good with, like, my landscaping efforts at home but I can figure this out. I get this. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Does that make sense? Fruit is only as good as its root. What's the root here? What's the analogy? The root is the seed that falls on a well-prepared 
piece of soil, the heart, parable of the sowers. That's in the Gospels, right? The gospel, the good news about salvation in Christ is the seed that produces fruit in good soil, which is the analogy of a heart that God has prepared to receive it. Regeneration, the new births, okay? So faith in Christ, who he really is and what he's done for you, is the seed resulting in good, strong roots. And therefore, good practice is going to produce good fruit. You got to have that. It starts with the fruit of faith. Like someone said, proper doctrine always produces proper practice. Now you might say this, or you might know someone who would say to me, Pastor Bernie, here's my truth. I remember the day, I can tell you the moment I had an experience with God. I had an epiphany. I was kind of knocked off my horse like Paul on the Damascus Road. I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card, I got baptized twice. I went to a new members class. I joined a church before this one, right? I even ministered, served in the ministry, fed some poor people, cared for little children, taught some teenagers. That makes me a Christian in and of itself, right? Right? Not necessarily. In this first letter of John, he gets right at this with this contrast of words and deeds, what somebody says versus what they do. In the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 4, talks about the person that says, I know him. And then in the same verse, it says, but does not keep his commandments. And God's saying, how do you know me, really, if you're not keeping my commandments? Let's hear the Lord's response to that kind of questioning about the person that just says they're a Christian. Back in Matthew 7, verse 21, Lord says, you've heard this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this is judgment day he's talking about, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, preach, even proclaim in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, man. The word of life is getting serious here. The Lord is separating the wheat from the weeds, sheep from the goats, and the light from the darkness. What's the proof? Test here. It's in the middle of verse 21. Mark this. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... The root of the phrase, does the will, guess what? Comes from the same root word John uses in verse 6, practice the truth. Doing the will of the Father means practicing the truth, means walking in the light, means bearing fruits of repentance. In that same sermon, the beginning of verse 16, the Lord says, you will recognize or know them by their what? There you go. The Lord's real good with fruit inspection. The Apostle John is asking us, how good are you with your fruit inspection? How about me? Proof test. Look how Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew 7, verse 24. Emphasis. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock is like the word here. 
and the rain fell, okay, think hurricane, floods came, winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the... And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Sand's not a very good foundation for a home, right? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Fall of it is referring to judgment and condemnation. Same root word, does them. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is the same word John is translating as practice in his text. Therefore, put all this together, obedience to Christ and the revealed word of God doing his words as a practice of life is what it means to live in the light and this may be one of the best single proofs of whether or not you are a Christian. This is one way you know that you're not just a professor of Christianity but a possessor of Christianity, of the Holy Spirit. If you practice your walk, if it's right with the Lord habitually and you're living in his light, Fruit looks good, you can say, okay, I have fellowship with him. I'm fellowshipping with God. And therefore, you can have a good, loving fellowship in the church. That's what verses 6 and 7 are about. John repeatedly associates what one says with what he does and how he behaves. But then guess what? What you do with sin, and however infrequently that may be, Hopefully, prayerfully, the idea is you confess your sin, and if you do, you'll be cleansed. You'll be good with God. Look at the end of verse 7 back in our text. If we have fellowship with one another, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let me give you a little theological hook to hang this thought on for a moment. Okay, you hear the blood of Christ. That refers to the death of Jesus, okay? There's nothing supernatural or magical in the blood of Christ in and of itself. It's referring to the atonement, the cross, forgiveness of sin, and what it produces for believers, okay? It's a figure of speech for death. His death was given as a sacrifice for believers. That's why it says in Mark's gospel at the first Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, new covenant, which is poured out for many, not for everybody, for many, for believers. And we'll get into more of that next time. But we're talking about the cross. The blood in the new covenant has a purifying, cleansing in the present tense. It's ongoing, has that kind of effect for us when we're dealing with sin. And that, folks, is the blessing of confession. Do you know that? You know what a beautiful thing it is not to be hung up in Catholic dogmatism that you have to go into a little box and confess to another guy about your sin when you can go right to God directly because you have Christ? Is that not a beautiful thing? So when you confess sin, there's this continuous cleansing removal of it so that you can be walking right with the Lord in light and not in darkness. That English word cleansing comes from the word we get catharsis from. You ever heard of that, catharsis? A catharsis, people talk about it's a cleansing. It's, think of it this way. You know, when you've sinned, you have a tremendous amount of guilt sometimes. You have shame. You may have bitterness. You may be carrying this burden like a backpack. And when you confess your sin, you, you just get it off. The Lord just takes it off your back. That's what he's talking about here. So that's one way to deal with sin. 
Here's the other alternative in verses 8 to 10. The covering of sin. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There were some Gnostics professing believers at the time. Remember I told you before, they were denying they were even sinners. They had this higher knowledge. They denied that they were sinning at all while professing faith in Christ. They were delusional, of course. That's what false teaching can do, can lead you astray from the way. If you say you don't sin at all, you're deceiving, you're lying as well as to yourself and others, to God, and it's a compound sin. David had a compound sin. King David, right? What did he do? He broke about half the Ten Commandments in one night, virtually. Conspiracy to murder, lying, coveting, adultery, didn't confess it, right? We don't have that much in the way of mainstream Gnosticism today, but you know what we do have today? Moral relativism. You have people identifying with Christ like some of the United Methodist Church, which is about to now split in two over the issue of homosexuality because they are so caught up in the sexual revolution, they now have taught that homosexuality is not sin and it's perfectly okay with God. So you have that side, and they're going to be a Methodist congregation, denomination, and then you have those holding the truth. That'll be another one. For the person that believes and practices that lifestyle, it's now a twofold sin issue. The first sin is denying the truth that homosexuality, like other forms of fornication, is sin. It's number one. And second, then denying that God calls it sin, which he does, clearly. Old Testament and New shouldn't even be arguable. So you got a twofold sin that you got to confess. So a person like that, according to this text, if they hold to that position, they do not have the truth in them or her. Therefore, they're in darkness rather than walking or living in the light. Verse 10 at the end of the passage says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You never want to be that person that's making God out to be a liar and you're calling God a liar. You read his word clearly and you go... He meant well, the Lord really meant something else. No, he didn't. Sorry. There's only one you can call the father of lies, and it is not our father in heaven, is it? Who is the father of lies, according to the Lord in John 8? Satan, the enemy of your souls. He's a deceiver. But then you might be one of those people Let's say, well, I know I was a sinner, but not anymore, right? The Lord saved me from all of that. So, yes, you are saved if you're legitimately a believer in having to pay the penalty for your sins. That's true. The cross took care of that. Christ is your substitute. But not in the sense of sanctification. Not in the sense of walking and living with the Lord day to day. I want you to turn to the book of Romans very quickly, chapter 7. We were there a ways back. The letter to the Romans, chapter 7, and Paul wrote in verse 15 there, just for any one of us that thinks we can't sin, this is Paul who writes, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Have you ever said that to yourself before? Like constantly maybe? Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells or makes itself at home 
within me, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, flesh meaning my humanity, okay? Not there, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And means in and of of yourself and your humanity, you can't stop your sin. Remember we talked about right now, even Christians, we're in a tug of war with the flesh. We're in a tug of war with sin. You have a new nature, you have a new nature, yes, you can say no to sin, but not completely, not completely. In fact, you had people in Romans in chapter 6 that were telling Paul that we're talking about in the church, well, since our sin is covered and we're forgiven, we can basically do whatever we want to do, right? And Paul responded this way, Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, rhetorical question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can you still sin habitually if you've been freed from it and you confessed it and repented of it? So Christ is saying in the new nature that you have a will to fight and that you are eventually going to get victory. So what does this mean, folks? I want to comfort you. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about what? Direction. Where are you going? Are you more Christ-like today than you were yesterday? More this week than last week? How are you doing compared to your walk last month, last year? Those are things to ask. What do, you, what do you do with remaining sin? That's the remedy here back in our text, this very familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That sounds like what he did at the cross when you were saved. And that's true, but that's not the context of this verse. John's writing to believers, believers and unbelievers who are having trouble confessing sin and covering it up. So what John is saying to us is, hey, you Christians, you're really born again? There's cleansing, there's blessing for you in your day-to-day walk with the Lord if you confess your sin, because you know what? You're still sinning. You still will. I love the word confess. In the Greek word, it's a compound word, and it has the idea of saying the same thing as another person. It means to agree with somebody. Like if you conceded in a debate and say, okay, I give up, I tap out, that was a confession. What are we talking about? Agreeing with God, what he says about you and your sin is what it means to confess. What he says in his revealed word about your conduct, about your behavior at any given moment. It's just openly declaring your guilt before God is what it means to confess sin. So you need to be confessing as often as you sin, which could be day to day, of course. Repenting, turning from it, asking for the Lord to cleanse you of its effects, its power to shame you, to keep you down in the dark instead of the light. So this is another proof test of basic Christianity, living in the life. Here it is in a nutshell, okay? Real disciples, followers of Jesus by faith, they're saved, they're reconciled, they are at peace in their position with God because of Christ while you're still here in this life. But while you're still here, we still sin. And we better not say we don't and make ourselves out to be a liar 
or the Lord. And because of that reality, we need to continue to confess, to agree with God about whatever your sins are when you do them, as often as you do them, so you get cleaned up. Not so you're going to be sinless, so you're going to sin less. You get the difference? You're not going to be sinless in this life. If you're walking in the light, you should sin less because we're cleansed in the spirit of Christ. And we're going to be walking in the light. We're going to be at peace with God. So we need the Lord's parental forgiveness, not his judicial forgiveness. If you came to Christ, you've been declared right with God, justified by faith, not guilty. You've been forgiven, okay? But until your body, your resurrection body comes in glory, you're still walking here and you're still sinning. So it's like the parent. A parent has a child, a child sins, a child breaks the law of the house, and he comes to his parent, dad, mom, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? Yes, okay, so we're right, relationship is good, God's no different, same idea. He's your father, he's your Abba father, right? So, this is why we use this verse so often in our Sunday morning prayer meetings as we did this morning and on the Lord's Day, 1 John 1, 9. You should really commit that to memory, whether you're at home alone with the Lord, whether you're in the Word next week when we take the Lord's table. This text, 1 John 1, 9 in particular, is a wonderful thing to really have in mind. Shoot, maybe we should do it as a memory verse, right? If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Critically important, not that overly hard to memorize. So let me close. Again, get this idea of the contrast, guys, light and darkness. Anyone here of a bank robber named Jesse James? Way back? You may not know this about him. He killed a guy in a bank robbery on one Sunday and then was baptized on the same day in Kearney Baptist Church. And then he killed another man, a bank cashier, and joined the church choir, and he taught him singing. You don't want a guy like that on the praise team, brother. You know, he, he liked Sundays, but he didn't always show up at church on Sunday because on two Sundays he robbed trains. So his walk didn't match his talk, did it? Don't be preoccupied with what people say as much as what they do. That's the light that we're talking about here. Jesse James professed life, lived in darkness. Did he have fellowship with God? According to the best textual historical evidence we have, probably not, unfortunately. So I ask you, and you should ask others, as Peter asked in his first letter, have you been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light? If not, I'm going to tell somebody, I'm telling somebody in this room right now, this may be the day they have thought for many years they have been living in light when they've been in darkness because the walk hasn't matched the talk. There hasn't been that practice of truth. There hasn't been that fruit of repentance. And if you doubt, if you doubt where your position is with God, why delay? Why not do business with God today? Why not repent why not confess Jesus as Lord, turn to him, trust in him that he paid for your sin on the cross once and for all, and that you would be a disciple, a true follower of Jesus, walking in life and light. 
Do that today. And if you do, you know what? Come see us or myself, Pastors Alex or George, one of our men or women in the church, so we can just pray with you and come alongside you and, and give you that assurance and walk through the gospel. And for most of us that are Christians, look, a good number of us probably sinned on the way here to church today. We might have even broken a commandment or two. Confess that. Be cleansed. Don't you want to be free from that? Right? The light gives freedom. So let's pray, shall we? I'm struck by John 12 and the apostles' words there. Quoting our Lord Jesus, let's pray. Lord, you said your light, you are the light that was among them for a little while longer, and you challenged followers to take advantage of that time while they had the light to walk in it so that darkness would not overtake them because the one that walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While we have the light, may we believe in the light, Lord, and that way we would become sons of light. Lord, you came into the world as light so that whoever believed in you would not remain in darkness. Lord, I pray you will shine your light of salvation, redemption, peace, joy, forgiveness of sins on everyone in this room today and for life-transforming new birth forgiveness for those that have never sought you in that way before. Make that happen today. Maybe that person will come forward today now in our, in our time of open response or in fellowship. Holy Spirit, do your work as only you can. Help us to live in the light, Lord, as we confess our sins and not cover them up. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org.